Paul's letter to the Galatians is the most potent, hard-hitting book in the New Testament. It's the theology of Romans crystallized and condensed and applied to the crisis in Galatia. Not six months after Paul's departure from Galatia, where he and Barnabas had established several churches in cities like Pisidian Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe, You can read about that voyage in Acts 13 and 14. Not six months after departing from Galatia and heading back to Antioch, false teachers had come into those newborn Galatian churches preaching what Paul called a different gospel. They were troubling the infant believers of Galatia. These opponents of Paul in Galatia seem to have been Judaizers from Jerusalem, and their message was that if the Galatian Christians, most of whom were Gentiles, if they wished to be saved, if they wished to participate in the eschatological salvation promised to Abraham and to his offspring, they needed to become Jews. That is, they needed to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. These Judaizers did not deny that Jesus was the Messiah. They didn't deny the necessity of faith in him for salvation. They just simply denied that faith in Christ was sufficient for salvation. They added works to faith, and in so doing, they lost the gospel. And Paul was mad. He was really mad. He says in Galatians 1.6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And in Galatians 2.16, he says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Or in Galatians 3, when he opens up by saying, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Or Galatians 5. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by law. You have fallen away from grace. He then says, I wish that those who unsettle you would just emasculate themselves. Paul was mad. And in the face of this grave threat, Paul responds with two main arguments. The first, a stirring defense of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And the second, an explanation of how the Abrahamic covenant of promise differs from the Mosaic covenant of law. In other words, Paul responds to this threat to the gospel with the very same doctrine found in Romans 1 through 11. That doctrine condensed, crystallized, and applied to the specific crisis in Galatia. 
But what draws our attention to Galatians this morning is how Paul concludes this fiery epistle and the application that he draws from his defense of the gospel. He writes in Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom from guilt. Freedom from judgment. Freedom from the law. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So note this carefully. For Paul, there is no distinction between freedom from guilt, judgment, and the law, a freedom which the gospel provides, and freedom from sin and the freedom to love others selflessly, freedoms which the gospel also provides. He didn't see a distinction between those or a separation between those. Both are vital components of the gospel message. It should not surprise us then that Romans does not end with chapter 11, but continues on with several more chapters dedicated to describing that transformation which must and will take place in the life of a believer and in the life of a church in which the gospel, the gospel of Romans, the gospel of Galatians, the gospel of Christ has taken deep, deep root. How could it be otherwise? Romans 1 began with the description of unregenerate man and his, his downward spiral from the suppression of the truth, Romans 1.18, to false and foolish worship, Romans 1.22 and 23, down to corrupt and depraved minds doing corrupt and depraved things, Romans 1.28 to 32. But for those who are in Christ, for those for whom the gospel of Romans 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8 has taken a deep root, those, those truths are no longer suppressed. And that spiral, that downward spiral is reversed. For those who are in Christ, their corrupt and depraved minds are being renewed. Their corrupt and depraved lives are being transformed. And their corrupt and depraved worship is being restored. If Romans 1 through 11 was the gospel, then Romans 12 and following is the goal of the gospel, the aim of the gospel, namely the obedience of faith, the creation of a loving, transformed, worshiping people. But this transformation is, in the words of John Stott, neither automatic nor is it inevitable. It requires instruction. It requires exhortation in the faith. Martin Luther learned this truth the hard way. By 1529, the Reformation had been in full swing in Germany for nearly 12 years. 12 years that had brought a tidal wave of religious, cultural, political change. The gospel Luther had helped to recover had shattered the foundations of medieval Europe. But all was not well. Germany, though free from the political and religious corruption of the Roman Catholic Church, was not the Protestant utopia that Luther had envisioned. We freed them from the Pope, we preached to them the gospel, and the people lived like pigs, Luther wrote. Evidently, the gospel was not enough. 
or at least the doctrine of justification by faith alone was not enough. The people, Luther found, needed the whole counsel of God. They needed instruction in the moral law, in the ethical commands of Scripture. They needed to be taught what holiness was, and they needed to be exhorted to pursue that holiness with all their might. And so Luther wrote his famous catechisms, which taught the German people the Ten Commandments and the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer. You see, it is no good if First Baptist Nixon knows the great doctrines of the gospel and yet lives like pigs. The goal of the gospel is not merely faith, but according to Paul in Romans 1.5, the goal of the gospel is the obedience of faith for the sake of the name. So let's press in over the next several chapters of Romans with just as much passion and intensity as we have in the first 11 chapters. Why? Because Christ died to redeem us from sin, death, and hell. And he died to create a transformed people, a transformed church that is radiant with holiness and overflowing with joy and abounding in love. Paul begins these next chapters of Romans, these chapters of gospel application with these famous verses from the beginning of chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The key word in this passage is found in verse 2, where Paul exhorts the Roman church to be transformed. The Greek word there is metamorpho, from which we get our word metamorphosis. It's like the transformation that takes place in the cocoon when the caterpillar transforms into the butterfly. The word is used on only two other occasions in the entire New Testament. If we look at those, we can get a better idea of the kind of transformation that Paul is calling the Roman Christians and the Christians of First Baptist Nixa too. The first is at the transfiguration of Jesus. When Jesus took Peter and James and John up that high mountain by themselves, Matthew writes that Jesus was transfigured. He was metamorphosized before them. And his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. See, in that instant, the veil of his flesh was removed and the light of divine glory, which belonged to him as the eternal son of God, burst forth and he was transfigured. He was transformed. Paul then uses the same word in 2 Corinthians 3.18 when he says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. We're being metamorphosized into the same image, the image of Christ, from one degree of glory to the other. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We are transfigured, we are transformed by beholding the unveiled face of the glory of Christ which is, according to Paul, a work of the Spirit. 
That's the kind of transformation Paul has in mind in Romans 12 too. It goes so much deeper than mere religious acts or mere morality or merely turning over a new leaf and making a new start in life. It is nothing less than the metamorphosis of a child of darkness into a child of light who is radiant with the glory of Christ. It's the process of becoming what Paul said all of us were predestined to become in Romans 8, 29, namely the restored image of the son of God. Be transformed. That's the main point of Romans 12 through 15. But how and why and into what? Those are the questions we'll seek to answer this morning and over the next few months as we conclude our study of Romans. I have four brief points to make this morning from the opening verses of Romans 12. The first regards the motivation of our metamorphosis. Paul begins in verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Now, our church has spent the last 18 months working our way through Romans 1 through 11. And so by now, you should have a pretty good idea of what Paul means by the mercies of God. In fact, mercy is a pretty good one-word summary of what Paul has said thus far. Romans 1 to 11 is the most soaring theological treatment of the doctrine of salvation found anywhere in Scripture. Nowhere else are the wonders of the gospel unfolded with such depth and such clarity and such glory. And all of it flows not from human will or exertion, says Paul in Romans 9, 16, but from God who has mercy. Doug Moo in his masterful commentary on Romans writes that all that Paul has written in the letter thus far may be summed up under the heading of the mercy of God in action. And it's on the basis of all of these mercies that Paul has spent the last 11 chapters unpacking that he now exhorts the believers in Rome and us to live out the transformation which God has worked and is working in them. So all that will follow over the next several months in the next several chapters of Romans is the substance of that transformation to which we are called. But Romans 1 to 11 is the source. So I want to take just a moment because perhaps there are people tuning in this morning that haven't been with us over the last 18 months as we've worked our way through Romans 1 through 11. And I want to give you a brief overview of what Paul means when he talks about the mercies of God that ought to motivate us to transformation. After an introduction in Romans 1, 1 to 15, in which Paul expresses his desire to come to Rome to preach the gospel an introduction that culminates in that classic statement, which is really the thesis statement for the entire book of Romans, where Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. After that glorious introduction, Paul then spends the next few chapters from 118 all the way to 320 indicting the entire world, both Jew and Gentile and you and me, every man without exception, 
And he charges them with treason and he places them under the sentence of God's everlasting wrath and indignation. But in Romans 3.21, the mercies of God burst forth through the dam and begin to flood the pages of Romans. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And from Romans 3.21 all the way to the end of chapter 5, Paul expounds this glorious, world-altering, pride-shattering gospel of justification by free grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works of the law. Then at the beginning of chapter 6, Paul anticipates a question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? If the gospel really is free then why not just receive it and continue to live the way we want to live? Paul says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? In other words, does the grace of justification affect only our legal standing before God? Is is the gospel only about the forgiveness of sins? Or does it actually transform the way we live? And so over the next three chapters, 6, 7, and 8, Paul expounds the doctrine of sanctification or the process of becoming holy. All those whom God declares righteous, that's justification. He then actually transforms into righteous people, that's sanctification. And he sanctifies them in the very same way in which he justifies them. Namely, by grace, through faith, apart from works of the law. You don't become holy by self-effort, by trying with all of your might to live a holy life. You become holy by faith in the power of the Spirit who exerts all of His sovereign might to enable you to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to walk by the Spirit and so to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, namely, to love one another. Finally, in Romans 9 through 11, Paul expounds the sovereignty of God in the salvation of individuals and of nations. Paul writes, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God's mercy is free and sovereign, not constrained or controlled by human will. This is what Paul has in mind when he appeals to us on the basis of the mercies of God. All of these works of grace justification, regeneration, union with Christ, sanctification, adoption, election, predestination, glorification, resurrection, all of those benefits of the gospel are the mercies of God, which call forth and indeed which make certain our transformation. These mercies are the necessary foundation for transformation. And they are the only foundation which can hold up the weight of the commands which are to follow in the coming weeks and months and chapters of Romans. If you try to do what Romans 12 to 15 command, if you try to live the way they are going to call you to live, 
to feel the way they're going to call you to feel for any other reason or by any other power than by the mercies of God. Let me tell you, you're going to burn out and you're going to fail miserably. Mercy is the only power of metamorphosis because it's the only thing that can transform the caterpillar into the butterfly, the sinner into the saint. Try to live transformed without the transformation wrought by the mercies of God and you will fly no better than a worm with wings. The mercies of God, therefore, are both the motivation and the momentum of our transformation. But what does this transformed life look like? In other words, what are the marks of the metamorphosis? Well, Paul goes on in verse 1 to say, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This verse is overflowing with sacrificial imagery, and it provides a beautiful picture of the transformed life. Paul has in mind in the background here the Jewish temple and the sacrifices that were continually offered there. Present, for instance, or offer is a sacrificial term used of the offering of a sacrifice. Sacrifice, of course, calls to mind the continual offerings of the temple cult. Holy and acceptable bring to mind that requirement that the offerings presented at the temple were to be pure and unblemished. And when they were, they became a pleasing aroma to God. Even worship is a sacrificial term. According to Paul, then, the transformed believer is known by the fact that he views his life not as his own, but as a holy offering poured out before the Lord. And I want you to notice four aspects of this life offering which the believer presents to God. First, it is an outward offering. Paul calls upon us to present our bodies to God. And this is quite intentional, and I think it provides a necessary corrective to our traditional evangelical emphasis on on giving your heart to God. That emphasis is right, as we'll see momentarily. But one cannot give their heart to God without also giving their bodies to God. That's why presenting your bodies to God, Paul says, is your spiritual act of worship. According to John Stott, no worship is pleasing to God, which is purely inward, abstract, and mystical. It must express itself in concrete acts of service performed by our bodies. And these concrete acts of service, as Stott calls them, are going to be expounded as we proceed through Romans 12 and beyond. In other words, just as the unredeemed body acts out the unrighteousness that fills the heart, resulting in acts of sin, so the redeemed body acts out the righteousness that fills the heart, resulting in acts of righteousness. That's why Paul chose the word metamorphosis, transformation, to describe the new life of the saint. It's because a metamorphosis describes a a transformation that is inside out. If we see no outward marks of the butterfly, no fluttering wings, no vibrant colors, 
If we still see only the worm-like features of the caterpillar, we have to ask ourselves, has a metamorphosis actually taken place? And likewise, if we see no Christ-like features in a professing believer, we need to ask ourselves, has a metamorphosis actually taken place? Paul stressed the outward nature of our transformation back in Romans 6.13 when he said, do not present the members of your body, right? Your eyes, your hands, your feet. Don't present the your mouth, the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. So it's an outward offering. But secondly, it's a continuous offering. We must present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Now the sacrifices of the old covenant were not living sacrifices. They were sacrifices to be slaughtered. They were brought to the altar to die once. But we are sacrifices of a different kind. Our bodies are presented to God continually, day by day, moment by moment, not to die, but to live. Transformation does not come through a once-for-all decision made on a Sunday morning but through the continual, ongoing presentation of our bodies to God as instruments of righteousness. Transformation happens only so long as we remain upon the altar of sacrifice. Third, it is a Godward offering. It is holy and acceptable to God. Christian transformation is not necessarily the same thing as other kinds of transformation. Non-Christians can be transformed in a variety of ways. They can lose weight. They can get fit. They can overcome an addiction. They can get their finances under control. There are many different kinds of transformation. Indeed, we live in an age of transformation. But all of those things may be driven by motives that are ultimately self-centered, self-glorifying. They may be driven by the motive to look better, to be more attractive, to feel better, to be healthier, to be wealthier, and so on. They may actually end up being offerings made to ourselves. But Christian transformation is unique in that it is God-centered. It may still involve losing weight and getting fit and getting your finances under control. And it will certainly involve overcoming addictions. But the motivation is different. It is, it is an offering made unto God. Its aim is holiness and acceptance before God. The goal is not to become a better you. The goal is to become like Christ. It's not to offer a sacrifice pleasing to myself. It's to offer a sacrifice pleasing to God. Fourth, it is a rational offering. Paul says this living sacrifice of our bodies to God is our spiritual worship. Now, your Bibles may read something different there. They may say it's our reasonable worship or our rational worship. And that's because there's some debate over to how this phrase should be translated and understood The word translated spiritual in the English standard standard version is the Greek word logikos, from which we get our English word, it sounds like it, logical. 
And this is why some translations render it your reasonable service, like the King James Version. Doug Moo writes, recognizing that each of the usual translations, right, spiritual in the NIV or the NASB or the ESV or reasonable in the KJV, each of them misses some important part of the meaning. And so he suggests it would be best to understand it in terms of true worship. This is your true worship. You see, the phrase could be understood in one of three ways. Paul could mean that it is our spiritual worship in the sense that being a living sacrifice is more than just presenting our bodies. It involves the presentation of our hearts and our spirits as well. Pharisees and legalists, in other words, cannot be living sacrifices holy and acceptable to God because they're only outward. Or it could mean reasonable service or reasonable worship in the sense that Presenting your bodies to God is the only logical, reasonable, fitting response to the mercies which God has so freely lavished upon us. Or it could mean rational worship in the sense that it accords with our rational faculties of reason, with our, in, our intellects. All three are true. And Paul could very well have all three in mind, but I lean toward the third option. Because of the fact that in the very next verse, Paul explains that the transformation takes place by the renewing of your mind. Our bodies are instruments under the control of our minds. And therefore, our bodies can be truly presented to God only insofar as our minds are renewed in accordance with his good, acceptable, and perfect will. A transformed life is one in which our minds, our intellects, our reason are renewed by the word of God, awakened by the spirit of God. And therefore, our bodies, indeed our whole selves, are continually presented to God as a living sacrifice. Not to die, but to live and to perform the works of God, which will be exposited in the rest of Romans 12 and beyond. Works like love, service, prayer, hospitality, mercy, and more. This is a sacrifice which is holy and acceptable to God. This is a life of worship, and it is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So how does this inside-out transformation, this metamorphosis, actually take place? In other words, what are the means of transformation? Well, that's what Paul tells us in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, is. Paul presents this command in both its negative and its positive forms, like two sides of the coin of metamorphosis. And holiness requires both. Paul conceives of the world and the will of God like like two opposing magnets, like you try to put two negatives or two positives together and they repel one another. All of us are born with an irresistible attraction to the world. But when a person is reborn by the grace and power of the Spirit, that irresistible attraction is broken. Even though we remain to some extent attracted to the world, that attraction is no longer irresistible. And a new attraction is created that is now drawn towards the will of God. 
Transformation comes then by resisting that indwelling attraction to the world and nurturing the new and growing attraction to the will of God. John Stott explains it in this way. He says, these two value systems, this world and God's will, are incompatible, right? Like the two uh, negative poles of the magnet. They're incompatible, even in direct collision with one another. Whether we are thinking about the purpose of life or the meaning of life, about how to measure greatness or how to respond to evil, about ambition or sex or honesty or money or community, religion or anything else, all of which, by the way, will be addressed in Romans 12 to 15. The two sets of standards, says Stott, diverge so completely that there is no possibility of compromise. So this transformation, this metamorphosis then is the metamorphosis from a child of the world who, who is irresistibly attracted to the world into a child of God who is attracted to the things of God. And take note of this because it's so massively important. It is not a transformation that takes place from the outside in. That's legalism. That's Pharisaism. That's much of American Christianity. And it doesn't work. This is a metamorphosis, a transformation from the inside out. It doesn't start with the presentation of the body. It begins with the renewing of the mind. And the mind is renewed in one way and one way only. By the Spirit of God through the Word of God. Even though Paul does not here tell us how to be renewed in our minds, he does so clearly in many other places. And I just want to mention two that I chose because of their connection to this verse. The first is from 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12, where Paul says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words. Not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Note carefully what Paul's doing. Where is this apostolic teaching, this deposit of Spirit-inspired wisdom and truth to be found? It's found in the apostolic word, the Bible. And the only way to understand these things freely given to us by God is by the Spirit who is from God. This is how, according to 1 Corinthians 2.16, we receive the mind of Christ, which is the goal of our transformation, to be conformed not to this world, but into the image of Christ. The second passage is 2 Corinthians 3.18, which we've already looked at this morning. Where Paul says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Transformation, metamorphosis, happens by degree, from one degree of glory to another. And it happens through the beholding of the glory of the Lord. Now, how do we behold the glory of the Lord? Now that the Lord is ascended to the right hand of the Father and he's no longer among us upon the earth, we behold the glory of the Lord in the word of the Lord. And this transformation, says Paul, this metamorphosis comes from the power of the Spirit. 
So the mind is renewed and we are transformed into the image of Christ as we behold the glory of Christ by the power of the spirit in the word of God. The spirit of God through the word of God gives us the mind of God. That's what the rest of verse 2 means. That by testing, you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, reading the word of God, sitting under the preaching of the word of God by the power of the spirit of God gives you the mind of God. Meaning it renews, reshapes, reforms, reprograms your mind so that you think like he thinks and you can discern his will and know and desire the good and the acceptable and the pleasing and perfect. Do you ever wonder what to do in certain situations that the Bible doesn't directly address? Or how to apply a a general biblical principle in a specific situation in your life? You ever wondered how that happens? This is the key. A renewed mind enables you to discern what is good and acceptable and perfect. To discern the will of God in specific situations. Even in those situations to which the Bible does not explicitly speak. The Bible says, for instance, to give generously to the poor. But should I give money to the guy standing on the corner with the cardboard sign? The Bible says to serve the Lord with fervency. Romans 12, 11. But how? In, in which ministry of the church should I fervently serve the Lord? The Bible says not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together, Hebrews 10.25. But do we stop our public gatherings because of the coronavirus outbreak? For these questions and a thousand like them, we need a renewed mind in order to live a transformed life. It's also interesting to note that this is the exact opposite of what happens in the rest of the world whom God has given over, Romans 1, to a debased or depraved mind. You can read Romans 1, 28 to 32 for a list of what the depraved mind does. And you can read Romans 12 to 15 for a list of what the renewed mind does. The renewal of the mind, the spirit of God using the word of God to give us the mind of God is the means of our metamorphosis. Finally, a word about the ultimate mission of our metamorphosis. The aim of our transformation is the, is the greater glory of God and our greater joy in his glory. Which rightly understood are actually one and the same aim. The renewed mind leading to the transformed life is the life of greatest joy in the greatest glory of God. Now, I get this from two sources. First, I get it right here in Romans 12.1, where Paul says that the renewal of our mind leading to the presentation of our body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, is our spiritual worship. It's how we worship, glorify God. The transformed life is a living, breathing act of worship. It makes God look glorious when formerly impure people walk in purity. When formerly unloving people walk in love. When formerly stingy people are suddenly generous. When formerly fearful people are bold as a lion. 
when formerly proud people undo one another in love and honor, when formerly bitter and unforgiving people overcome evil with good. Such thoroughgoing transformation makes God look glorious and powerful and magnificent and desirable. And that's what he desires to magnify his power and his glory and his grace in our transformed lives. The second place I get this is from Jesus' own lips from his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 14, where Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So what is the goal of living the transformed inside-out life? What's the goal of shining our light in the darkness of this world? It is that the world may see our transformation demonstrated in our good deeds and may give glory to our Father who is in heaven. And thus, by our metamorphosis, not only does God receive worship and glory from us, but he receives worship and glory from those who see the change which his grace, his mercies, have so powerfully wrought in us. That's what I desire for First Baptist Nixa. That we would be a people so utterly transformed from the inside out that when the people of this world, our unbelieving neighbors or family or co-workers, when they come in contact with us, it's like a light shining in the darkness. It's like a butterfly in the midst of caterpillars. They've never seen anything like it. They've never seen a people so free and joyful and holy. I'm so tired of hearing people say that Christians are no different than anyone else. And I want to ask them, do you actually know any Christians? Like any real ones? Beloved, we need to be different. Especially in this time of national crisis, when fear and panic and anxiety are sweeping through our nation. This world needs to see a church that is free from anxiety and free from fear and confident and bold and holy. They need to see a people who are transformed. The rest of Romans 12 to 15 are going to show us how we will be transformed. But verses 1 and 2 show us how to begin. The mercies of God producing the works of God by means of the spirit of God through the word of God, giving us the mind of God that we may live a life of worship to the glory of God.